keeping secrets can be hard, right? Harder for some of us than others, maybe. But uh, Ben Franklin, he's the one that said uh, three people can keep a secret if two of them are dead. There's a lot of truth in, in that. I think people need, at times, kind of powerful motivation to keep things confidential, to keep a secret. I think our motivation for keeping things a secret has to be bigger than the motivation we have to share something. Right? Because sometimes it feels good to be the person who knows something and the other person can be paying attention to me. Sometimes we just have to have a, a better motivation for keeping a secret than sharing it. Somebody once wrote that this is the, the difference between private companies and the government. It can be seen in this. Motivations for confidentiality. It's why the recipes for Coca-Cola and Kentucky Fried Chicken are still secrets. But you can find the recipe to build an atomic weapon on the internet. <laughs> right? Because... People have financial motivations to keep and to give secrets. Well, in, in the Lord's ministry, he had one thing he, about himself that he tried to keep confidential. His, his identity as Messiah, he fairly consistently tried to keep a secret. And I've showed several of these. Here's, here's one from the book of Matthew in chapter 16, the first time the disciples recognized Jesus' full identity uh, through Peter, their spokesman, uh, Simon Peter, Jesus had asked, who do you say I am? And, and, and Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And shortly thereafter, Jesus instructed his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Christ. Now, was Jesus ashamed to be the the Messiah, no. Um, it's just that people didn't understand what it would mean for him to be the Messiah. They knew what the Messiah was. The Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in, in Greek, is a position. It's a royal position. It's a king. By Jesus' day, it had been 600 years since there had been a king in Israel. But God promised that he would send a new king. That king was the Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the one who would restore the throne to Israel. And Jesus was that king. The problem is the Bible's really clear about who gets into the king's kingdom when he establishes it. The Bible's really clear that only the righteous get into the kingdom. And the Bible's just as clear that there's no one who is righteous. Do you see the problem there? If only the righteous get in and there's no one who is righteous, that means nobody gets into the kingdom. So if Jesus shows up as Messiah, which he was, and he establishes his kingdom right away, he could do that. The problem is there wouldn't be anyone in his kingdom. Because we needed a savior before we could be a part of the king's kingdom. That's, that's why Jesus kept his identity as Messiah secret. 
Because people didn't understand that there was going to be this huge gap between when the Messiah showed up in Jerusalem, which we're going to study about today. That's what he does today in Matthew 21. There'd be a huge gap between then and when he actually takes the throne on earth. We're still waiting on that. Because we had a great need for a righteousness we can't achieve on our own. Jesus came, he lived a perfect life, and what happened at the cross is the greatest trade-off anyone could imagine. What happened at the cross, Jesus, who was sinlessly perfect, there was not even any deceit found in his mouth, the Bible says, which means he never even talked bad about someone in a way that wasn't correct. Even though he was perfect, what was happening when he went on the cross is he became our sin, the Bible tells us. It's like everything in our personnel files. You know what? A, you ever have a personnel file? You ever have a job where you had a personnel file? Everything, every, all of our secrets in our personnel file came out of our file and went on him at the cross. And he received so, so sufficiently and completely the punishment all our sins deserve that the Apostle Paul tells us that now, for those of us who are in Christ, that that happened for, there's no more condemnation for those of us because it was all our sins were already punished. And that's only half the trade-off. Then the other half is this. Those who believe in him, God takes Jesus' personnel file his sinlessness, all the wonderful things he did, all the good stuff out of Jesus' personnel file, and he sticks it in our personnel file. So that when we are judged by God, he doesn't read our personnel file. It's been burned. He reads his son's personnel file that's been put in our place. That's how we receive a righteousness we don't earn. And that's how we can get into his kingdom when he establishes it, because we bear his righteousness. It's still true. Only the righteous get into the kingdom. But it will be those who bear the righteousness of Jesus. Nobody understood that when Jesus was alive. In fact, there were some people one time in the book of John who started to put two and two together about what Jesus was doing in his life and what the Bible said about Messiah. And they started to understand, hey, wait a minute. I think this Jesus guy is the Messiah. And in the book of John, we're told they, they, took, they wanted to take Jesus by force and make him king. They thought that would be a good thing. They didn't understand if he became king, they couldn't be in the kingdom. And so Jesus would do this over and over. Don't tell anyone I'm the Messiah because you don't get it. And that's what makes today's passage combined with last week's significant. Because today Jesus like outs himself. Last week at the, at the foot of the hill, Mount Zion, Jerusalem's at the top of the hill, Jericho's at the bottom, and there were two blind men that saw Jesus clearly, pun intended. They, they could see, they knew, they understood that Jesus was the Christ. And so they started shouting Basically, to put it in our language, you're the Messiah, heal us. You're the Christ. And not only did Jesus not tell them to be quiet, the crowds told him to be quiet. 
Jesus went back, paid attention to him. He accepted the label of Messiah that they put on him publicly. And then he healed them publicly. He gave sight to the blind, something that the Old Testament said Messiah would do. He did this all very publicly. And then today, he's going to allow himself, he's going to really uh, organize for himself an inauguration parade. That's what this is. It's like the inaugural parade of the Christ. He's going to ride into Jerusalem in a way that it's like he is holding a big banner that says, the Messiah is here and I'm him. It's a very significant story and a significant event in the life of Christ. I want to share the story with you and then at the end, explain the greatest triumph that Jesus might, might be able to have in, in your life. Let's read our passage before we go through it. Study. This is Matthew chapter 21. This is verses 1 through 11. On the screen is the New American Standard Bible. And that's also, there's a copy of that underneath the chair in front of you if you'd like to follow along. Matthew 21, 1 through 11, read this way. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent out two of his disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you like, Hey, what are you doing with my donkey? Uh, you shall say, The Lord has need of them. And immediately... He will send them. Matthew writes in verse 4, This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did just as Jesus had instructed them. He brought the donkey and the colt, and he laid their coats on them, and he sat on the coats. Most of the crowd spread their coats in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. The crowds going ahead of him and those who were following were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when Jesus had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred or shaken, saying, Who is this? And the crowds were saying, This is the prophet Jesus Nazareth in Galilee. Okay, our story begins, beginning of chapter 21, with some careful planning on the part of Jesus. Jesus isn't in Jerusalem yet, and he, uh, he does some careful planning that's really interesting to me, uh, and, and I'll explain why. Jesus, he was more than just our moral example, right? He's more than our example, but he is our example of how to live. Jesus lived as the most faithful person who ever lived. He lived by believing that the Father would, would take care of him. He was just led by the Holy Spirit. Paul told us that Jesus like put aside some of his divine attributes. Even though he was God, he set some of that aside and he didn't use his divine power for his own benefit while he lived. He lived like you and I are supposed to live. Led by the Holy Spirit, believing the Father will take care of him 
in, in the Father's timing and the Father's will and the way the Father deems best. That's how we are supposed to live. And pretty much every temptation is the temptation to stop doing that. Think about it. You know the story of, do you remember the story of the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness? You can read it later in Matthew 4, Luke 4. Basically, the temptation by Satan of Jesus is the temptation for Jesus to stop living like a faithful man and use what you've got to get what you want when you want it and stop waiting on the Father. Right? Jesus has been, he fasted for 40 days. He's very hungry. Satan shows up. What's the first thing he says? Stop wandering. What are you doing all hungry? You're the son of God. Act like it. Turn these rocks into bread. Make yourself a sandwich. Have something to eat. Why would you wait out and use what you have for what you want when you want it? Jesus said, no, I don't live like that. Next, Satan says, why would you wait for God to take care of you the way God wants to take care of you? Force his hand. Go up to the top of the temple. High dive off of this bad boy onto the rocks below. You know the Father won't let you die. He'll send angels to scoop you up. And then you can force God's hand to give you what you want when you want it. Jesus says, no, I don't live like that. If you're the Son of God, Satan says, you're going you're to be, you're going to rule over the whole world. Why would you wait for God's timing, he's so slow. You bow down to me and I'll give you control of the world right now. No suffering, no hunger, no cross. What do you say? Right? Isn't that every temptation is somehow our flesh or the devil or the world trying to get us to do this? Let me take what I have so I can get and what I can do so I can get what I want when I want it. Right? Jesus was the ultimate example, waiting on the Father, led by the Holy Spirit. He did everything he did just to, to glorify the Father and be obedient. Here's how that pertains to today's passage. I, I could be wrong here, so you can search this later and point out where I'm wrong. I did a quick search just over the word need in the Gospels. And I'm pretty sure this is the only time Jesus ever said he needed anything. He didn't have many needs, right? He, he didn't need a house. He didn't need to know where his next meal was coming from. He just, he just didn't need anything. Until today. Today, they approach Jerusalem. Jesus sends two disciples out and he tells them, go find a donkey and a colt tied there. Untie them, bring them to me. And if anybody says, hey, what are you doing with my donkeys? Say, hey, the Lord needs them. <clears throat> Isn't that an interesting thing to be the first thing Jesus ever needed? Don't need a house. Don't even know where your next meal is coming from. He just walked all the way from the Sea of Galilee to Jericho. And suddenly he needs a ride into town. Doesn't that seem weird? Well, here's what's going on here and why Jesus has planned this so carefully. Jesus has hinted early in his earlier in his life and ministry what his only need really was. In the Gospel of John, he told his disciples this, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to complete his work. 
That's Jesus's one need. You know what I need? I need to be obedient to my father. I need to be obedient to do what God wants me to do the way, the way you guys need food. That's Jesus' need and his only need. And that's why Matthew says next what Matthew says next. About this whole arranging for a donkey thing, Matthew says this took place. What took place? Jesus arranging a donkey to ride into town on. This took place because Jesus had one need, which was to be obedient, and God wanted him to fulfill this prophecy on this day. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And this is from the prophet Zechariah. Matthew says this, Tell the people of Zion or Jerusalem, Look, your king is coming to you unassuming and seated on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Zechariah wrote, that that Jesus quoted from. Zechariah was a prophet who lived um, after the kingdom had been taken away from Israel. So there's no king in Israel. Zechariah was already waiting for the Messiah. It had been 70 years since, uh, since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. And now Zechariah, he lives back in a wrecked Jerusalem. And Zechariah's name is a cool name, by the way. It means Yahweh remembers or God remembers. And his whole ministry was that, to tell people God hasn't forgotten his promises. He's going to send the king that he promised. And, and in one part in Zechariah 9, he, he, Zechariah writes, God tells him, here's how people will know the Messiah when he shows up. And here's what he will do. When he gets to earth. But Zechariah is very choosy. Excuse me. Matthew's very choosy in what he decides to quote and what he decides not to quote. I want to I show you a little more of where this comes from. So here on the screen, this is, this is what the part Matthew actually quotes and paraphrases. This is the whole little paragraph that it comes from. And there's some definite differences between the two. And it's interesting what Matthew says and what he leaves out. Let's read the Zechariah part. Here's what Zechariah actually said. Yahweh remembers, God remembers, the king is going to come, and this is what it's going to look like when he comes. Rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. And that's just a way of saying the inhabitants of Mount Zion, the city of Jerusalem, the people that live there, not just girls. Behold, or look, See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken because he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here's what he said in verse 10 right here. When my king shows up, everybody's going to put all their guns away. You're going to take all the guns. This is not a gun control issue. So like, like don't, don't rebel on me here. Uh, when, when the king shows up, there's not going to be any more means for fighting, any more reason to fight. Why? Because he is going to, he's going to reign from sea to shining sea. He's going to reign from the river Jordan clear to the end. He's going to control the whole earth. And there's, not, there's going to be world peace. 
Now, Matthew doesn't say all that, does he? In fact, Matthew doesn't tell anyone to rejoice, much less rejoice greatly. So he just paraphrases that. Hey, just tell the people of Israel. He doesn't call Messiah. Matthew doesn't, he decides not to call Jesus righteous and victorious. Why not? Because on his first trip up that mountain, he didn't go there to, to be righteous. He, he went there to, to bear our sin, to become sin. And he didn't go there to become victorious, but to allow himself to be defeated and destroyed. Matthew only focuses on this part, the lowly and riding on a donkey. He certainly doesn't talk about Jesus uh, reigning from sea to shining sea and establishing world peace. I don't know if you've noticed, but we're still waiting on that part, right? So he only focuses on the king who rides a donkey. Now that's a really interesting thing for God to predict. When the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the the one who's going to rule the entire earth shows up, he's going to ride into Jerusalem, not just on a donkey, on a baby donkey. I remember, do you remember Bugs Bunny cartoons where there would be somebody like hunting and some little guy would would come running along on a baby donkey? It was ridiculous. This is not the ancient equivalent of riding into town on a tank. This is like riding into town on a tricycle or a a moped or something. Why would God say, when the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the one strong enough to establish world peace shows up, he's going to pedal a tricycle into town? Why would that be the prediction? I'm glad you asked. There's no doubt I want to be careful how I say this. There is no doubt the the most efficient form of government, the purest form of government, is an absolute monarchy, an absolute dictatorship where one person is in complete control. It's the most efficient form of government. There, There are no debates over the use of a filibuster in a dictatorship, right? In an absolute monarchy, there are no debates on whether or not the king can declare a national emergency. Right? It's the, it's the purest, most efficient form of government. It's the best way to get things done. Now, pay attention to this part here because I don't want to make sure you don't leave here thinking I'm saying something I'm not. Does that mean I believe... Governments should have a dictatorship today? No, not at all. But it's not because I believe authority is bad. It's because I believe people are bad. It's not that, it's not that a, an absolute monarchy is, is bad in and of itself. It's we can't trust anybody to be the king. What does absolute power do to people? You know the saying, absolute power does what? It corrupts absolutely. It abs- that's absolutely true. People try to gain power so they can use it for their own selfish purposes. Isn't that true? Well, here's Zechariah who lives in a wrecked Jerusalem. 
because an absolute king named Nebuchadnezzar, who was, had absolute power and could do whatever he wanted, was a terrible guy, at least at first. And he destroyed the temple of God, carried off God's people into exile and slavery. 66 years later, Zechariah and some others come back and they're in this shelled out mess of a Jerusalem. And through Zechariah, God says, I'm going to send a king, but he's going to be a humble king. He's going to pedal into town on a tricycle, on a baby donkey, to show his humility because he's going to rule for the benefit of other people. He's going to rule for, with what is in mind, with what is best for everyone else. And he is going to establish world peace. That's all Jesus. We're just waiting on it, on the most of it. And when Jesus gets to the top of Mount Zion in this last week of his life, he is going to demonstrate his humility and his others' focusedness by dying under the penalty our sins our sins deserve. So that's why Jesus needed that donkey. Because it's the sure sign it, it's, it, it, that I am Messiah and I'm staking my claim to that position. I am the good king. Folks, we are still waiting on the good king. We are still waiting on a good government. I got bad news for you. We're not going to get it in a year and a half. We're not going to get it four years after that. We're not going to get it four years after that. Unless that's the time when Jesus decides, I am done with this. And I'm going to show you how a real government works. All right, that's Jesus. He's pedaling into town on his tricycle, his baby donkey. And the next thing I want you to see from our story is the reaction of, of people. The disciples bring the, the, the mama and the baby donkey, and he's riding the baby donkey into town. It's, it is the clearest sign. Everyone there knew. They're all uh, Jews or, or proselytes to Judaism. They know the scriptures. This is Passover. Uh, history tells us Jerusalem swelled to like 2 million people this time. So there are mobs of people there, and they all know which king was supposed to ride a baby donkey into Jerusalem. And I want you to notice, they don't point and laugh when Jesus claims to be the Messiah. Every once in a while, there's still people claiming to be the Messiah, right? Last one I can think of, David Koresh, remember that guy down in Texas? For the most part, though, when people claim to be the Messiah, the rest of us know what? Oh, that's a crazy person, right? No. That's not the reaction Jesus gets. They don't point and laugh and they don't think he's nuts. They look through his resume of what he's done and what he's claiming to be and they go, it fits. He's here. This is it. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road and they cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road and then they yelled this stuff. You ever wonder what? If you grew up in church, you've heard the Palm Sunday story once a year for your whole life. You ever wonder what the coats and the branches thing was about? 
Here's what's going on there. Um, the standard dress was there was an uh, inner garment and an outer garment. The tunic inside was like a long nightshirt looking thing. And they wore something that we would call a robe on the outside. And what most of the people do, the Greek tells us, is they do the coats thing. They take off their outer garment. They go in front of Jesus on the baby donkey and they just lay their coat down in the road. And, and mobs of people are doing this so that he's riding on top of a, a road of coats. That's a way to symbolize I'm laying myself down before you. It's like literally saying, I want you to walk all over me. I'm submitting myself to you, but it will hurt too bad if I actually lay down, right? And the donkey might break its leg and you know what happens then and that'd be terrible. So we're just laying my coat down as a way to symbolize my submission. The tree thing, um, John tells us they're palm branches. When someone won an ancient contest of some kind, what, what, what kind of prize did they get? What kind of crowns did they get? Especially in the Greco-Roman world. They got them made out of plants. This is a sign of, of victory. And so what's happening here in the road that day, um, John Nolland wrote a Greek Testament commentary on the book of Matthew. He says... Uh, that he made a, I wrote carpet of honor here, but I think Nolan said they were creating a, a pavement of honor and submission. This, and they're shouting, Hosanna, save us, son of David. Son of David is another name for what? Messiah, Christ. So they're showing they're submitting to a king and they're shouting that he's the Messiah. Throngs and throngs of people. They, they quote Psalm 118, which is about the Messiah. And in verses 10 and 11, we see the results of this massive parade. As he enters Jerusalem, the whole city, this translation says, was thrown into an uproar. The Greek word used there is a, is a word that describes what happens during an earthquake. That's what happened to the city. It was that shaken up. The New American says the city was stirred, but actually it was shaken, not stirred, to use an old James Bond. Anytime you can quote James Bond, you've got to do it. The whole city was whipped up into a frenzy, and, and the people of Jerusalem, see the people going up the hill aren't from Jerusalem. They're from Galilee and elsewhere in Judea. And the people in Jerusalem look down the hill and they see very obviously a whole bunch of people are calling this guy the Messiah. When they ask, who is this? They're not asking, do you guys think he's the Messiah? It's also why they don't say this is Jesus the Messiah. They're showing they believe he's the Messiah. The people in Jerusalem are just like, I know what you're saying about this guy, but who is he? And they say, this is Jesus. You've heard of him. He's a prophet. He's the guy from Nazareth out in Galilee. He's the Messiah. Now, when Jesus gets up the hill, the inauguration celebration is going to end very quickly. He's not going to be crowned. He's going to be what? Crucified. The this is why Matthew paraphrases Zechariah and says, tell the people of Jerusalem their king is here. 
the people of Jerusalem are going to reject him. They're not going to shout Hosanna. They're going to shout crucify him. Why? Why did they reject Jesus in spite of the, all the evidence? We're going to answer that next week. So you have to come back next week for that. Today, I want to leave us where Matthew leaves us. By the way, Jesus knows that's coming. That's why in the Gospel of John, he tells us Jesus cried during the triumphal entry. At least at the beginning. For this week, I want to leave us where Matthew leaves us here. Jesus has stirred up the city. He has shaken Jerusalem. And people are asking this question, who is this? Here's something I find amazing about Jesus Christ that I think even non-Christians find amazing about Jesus Christ is that we are still talking about Jesus who called himself the Christ. And think about this. If he was just a poor, homeless, uneducated, Galilean man who called himself God, why would we still be talking about someone like that? If he's not those things, he's a crazy person. And we've lost track of the number of crazy people, and we don't preach sermons about them. See, Jesus is still shaking up the world, just like he did there, and people still ask this question, who is this? Not everybody uh, accepts him, just like when he got to the top of that hill. He still gets rejected by some. He still gets accepted by others. He gets loved by some. He gets hated by others. But he doesn't get ignored 2,000 years later. Why? I want to read one person's answer to that question. He was a little guy named Napoleon. You ever hear of Napoleon? Napoleon Bonaparte. He was the leader of the French Revolution one of the greatest military geniuses of all time. Uh, he, uh, unfortunately, his empire for him didn't last. He got kicked out of France, uh, and he was living in exile. And uh, somebody came and interviewed Napoleon and asked him who he thought Jesus was. This is 1,800 years after Jesus lived. It's kind of long, but it's so good, I wanted to re I'll read this with you. Here's Napoleon discussing who he thinks Jesus is. Well, then I will tell you who Jesus is. Alexander the Great, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I myself have founded great empires. But upon what did these creations of our genius depend? Upon force. Jesus alone founded his empire upon love. And to this very day, millions will die for him. Think about that. How many people are still dying out of devotion to Julius Caesar, Napoleon. I think I understand something of human nature, Napoleon says, and I tell you, all of these, Alexander the Great and me and Charlemagne, all of these were men and I am a man. None else is like him. Jesus Christ was more than a man. Why, Napoleon, do you think Jesus was more than a man? Here's why. I have inspired multitudes 
with such an enthusiastic devotion that they would have died for me when I was in control. But to do this, it was necessary that I should be visibly present with the electric influence of my looks, my words, of my voice. When I saw men and spoke to them, I lightened up the flame of self-devotion in their hearts. Here's what Napoleon said. I used to be able to do what Jesus does. I used to show up and people would cheer and go crazy and say, we will die for you. But he says, but I had to like be there and I had to be in control. Christ alone has succeeded in so raising the mind of man toward the unseen that it becomes insensible, that our minds become insensible to the barriers of time and space. Across a chasm of 1,800 years, Jesus Christ makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks for that which a philosopher may often seek in vain at the hands of his friends. He asks for what a father often doesn't get from his children. He asks for what a bride often doesn't get from her spouse. He asks for what a man often doesn't get from his brother. Jesus asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. He demands it unconditionally. And forthwith, his demands are granted. Did you hear that? Jesus asked that people give him Somebody, a Jewish carpenter that died 2,000 years ago. He says, I want you to give me your whole heart and people still do it. Wonderful, he says. In defiance of time and space, the soul of man with all its powers and faculties becomes an annexation to the empire of Christ. All who sincerely believe in him all who sincerely believe in him experience that remarkable supernatural love toward him. This phenomenon makes no sense. It's altogether beyond the scope of man's creative powers. Time, the great destroyer, is powerless to extinguish the sacred flame. Time can neither exhaust its strength nor put a limit to its range. This is it, which strikes me most. I've often thought of it. This it is, which proves to me quite convincingly the divinity of Jesus Christ. Napoleon got asked, who's Jesus? And Napoleon said, Jesus is the only man who ever lived who can, who can still be adding people to his empire after he's been dead for 1,800 years. How does he do that? And why does that happen? Here's why it happens. You still have a great need. It's the same need that Jesus had. Anybody remember from the sermon this morning, what was Jesus' only need? He needed to be obedient to the Father. He needed that like you and I need food. Guess how you and I have done toward fulfilling our greatest need? Not well. We've messed it up. That's why we need a savior. Because on our own, we can't grasp our greatest need. Jesus went through the punishment. We deserve so that he can give us the righteousness we don't deserve. And he says, whoever believes in me 
will not perish, but will have eternal life. That's how somebody gets conquered by Jesus. And, and like Napoleon said, becomes annexed into the empire of Christ. He's still expanding his territory, but it's not a political kingdom. It's one heart at a time. He said, I promise I will build my church. That's what he's waiting so long for. Because if he started his kingdom the day he rode into Jerusalem on the baby donkey, he'd have been the only person in it. And he's been waiting since he died on the cross. He's been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for you to lower the drawbridge of your heart and invite Jesus to come in and conquer your life. Because Jesus doesn't conquer like Napoleon. He didn't ride into town on a tank. What did he ride into town on? A baby donkey, humble and lowly. He will come in and make his home in your heart. He will save you from your sins. But he asks that you repent, that you lower the drawbridge of your heart, that you say, I, I need my greatest need. I can't get. I'm trying to be good enough. I'm trying to do religious things. I'm trying to help little old ladies across the street. I'm trying to be better than my neighbors. None of that stuff will work. I need a Savior. His name is Jesus. And I want to invite him to become my king. That question is still being asked. Who is Jesus? Every single person needs to come to an understanding. He can't be ignored. He can be rejected, but he can't be ignored. Who do you say he is? Will you ask him to conquer your heart? Will you lay the coats of your life down for him to trample upon? Make him your Lord, your Savior. You can do that right now today. Pray with me. Our Father and our God, I thank you so much for reminding us what the real triumphal entry is. Lord, it is not just you, Lord Jesus, riding that little donkey up into Jerusalem, but you will make your own triumphal entry into the heart of a sinner. If we will just admit our need to be saved, if we will admit our own sinfulness, admit that we, have, we can't stack up religious works and good works to make ourselves righteous before you, We need you to have died the death we deserve. God, if there's there someone here that's never done this, I pray that you would do a work in their heart, that they would lower the drawbridge of their heart, that they would ask you to ride in as the humble yet conquering king. Be the Lord of their lives. If you'd like to do that this morning, you just say, Lord Jesus, I'm a, I'm a sinner. I'm not good. I'm not righteous. I won't get in. But I believe you died the penalty I deserve to die. And you rose again from the dead the way you will rise me from the dead. I place my faith and my trust in you, Lord Jesus, this day. And God, we pray all of these things name of our King, the Lord Jesus.